Welcome back to Series 3 of the Writing Around the Kids podcast. We're really excited to bring to you some great chats with our fabulous guests every week. We do hope you enjoy it. Did you know we also host panel discussions? We've got a really exciting one coming up on Thursday the 23rd of November online from 8 till 9pm about the writing life balance. We've got some fabulous guests for you on that panel discussion and that's Nicola Williams, Annie Garthwaite and Jacqueline Roy. To book your free place, go to our website, writingaroundthekids.co.uk and click on the section events. Hello and welcome to Writing Around the Kids. I'm Sam. And I'm Anna and today we're delighted to have Cathy Hayward with us. Hi Cathy. Oh, hi guys. So Cathy Hayward trained as a journalist and edited a variety of trade publications, several of which were so niche they were featured on Have I Got News For You. She then moved into the world of PR and set up an award-winning communications agency before 10 years later giving up the world of PR to become a bookseller. She took over Kemptown Bookshop in May 2022 with the aim of developing the shop into a community hub where events to engage new and established readers, celebrate local authors and support underrepresented writers. Devastated and inspired by in equal measure by the death of her parents in quick succession, Cathy completed the creative writing programme, out of which emerged her debut novel, The Girl in the Maze, about the experience of mothering and being mothered. It won the Angora Books Lost the Plot World Progress Prize 2020 and was long listed for the Grindstone Literary Prize 2020 and Flash 500 2020. It was published by Angora Books in November 21. She has since written two further novels and is working on a fourth. Cathy lives in Brighton, sandwiched between the Downs and the Sea, with her husband, three children, two rescue cats and one very lively Hungarian Vissel puppy. Hi, Cathy. Oh, hello. Hi. Oh, it's lovely to to be on the show. We're delighted to have have you. you. Yeah, and we're really um, excited you're going to read an an extract for us from, uh, from your book, The Girl in the Maze. So I'm just going to read the blurb for that. Emma Bowen has never had a close relationship with her mother, barely speaking with her in the last years of her life. But after her mother's death, Emma finds something that might just explain the distance between them. Discovering letters between her mother and grandmother, it seems to Emma that her mother has always been difficult. As she searches for answers about her own childhood, Emma is drawn into the mystery of her mother's enigmatic life. The more she finds, the more lost she feels. But Emma is determined to uncover her mother's past and the secrets held within it, whatever the cost. An enthralling story of three women, generations apart, linked by one terrible tragedy. Mm, so um if you just could you just give us a little bit of context for the the part that you're going to read for us yes absolutely so i'm going to read from the start of chapter two which um brings us to the present day so the first chapter um, is set in 1930 and kind of sets out um is the sort of start of uh, margaret's life and uh with her mother betty but i'm going to get get us straight into the present day which is kind of with our main protagonist um emma so, uh, yeah, I will, I will start reading. Fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, Margaret died, not as she lived, but quietly, slipping away after 20 years of dramatic illnesses where three times she had been given just hours to live. There was a certain irony, Emma felt, that on these occasions she had rushed up to her mother's bedtime in Morecambe, yet she'd missed her actual death. Emma tracked back. As her mother left this world, Emma had been in a local Tesco between the cereals and the frozen food. 
She'd got the call from the solicitor when she was back at home unpacking the shopping. Emma sighed and looked around the small solicitor's office. The window ledge hadn't been dusted for years. A dried-out spider plant was caked with decades of grime. The reception area, which doubled as the secretary's office, was chilly. There was a heater under the desk of the woman who had only reluctantly looked up from her pile of paperwork to welcome Emma. She didn't look much younger than the building. Behind the secretary's desk, Emma saw a figure start to emerge from a narrow corridor. Graham Eels, her mother's solicitor, looked even more dilapidated than his office. His dark eyes were sunken into his face, barely visible below untamed eyebrows. The hand he held out to greet Emma was equally hairy. Already a short man, he was bent over, as if from the weight of people's troubles he had shouldered over the years. He was smiling. Ah, Margaret's daughter, I was hoping you would meet. It's a pleasure to see you. Good to meet you too, Mr Eels. They shook hands and he ushered her back down the narrow corridor, years of spilled coffee staining the carpet tile. The back door was open, the chilly draught ruffling the stacks of paper lining the corridor and breezing into Graham's small office at the back of the building. The windows here were high up on the wall, so there was no view of whatever lay behind the office. But even if they had been big windows, Emma suspected the old solicitor would have found a way of covering them. Every single surface in the room was buried under piles of mineral files held together by elastic bands, labelled in the same spidery script. The top of a mahogany glass-fronted bookcase, which was full of impressive-looking legal tones, was stacked to the window ledge, and even the chair opposite the desk had several newer-looking folders on them. Graham slid them onto a pile on his desk and indicated where Emma should sit. He eased himself past another tower of files and sat on a well-worn leather chair opposite her. He was watching her, the tips of his fingers pressed together, his elbows resting on the cluttered desk. You do look like your mother. I suspect everyone says that. Emma smiled. Not many of my friends knew her. The contours around his eyes rippled as the old man returned her smile. Your mother was one of my longest standing clients. I'm sad that this day has come. As a solicitor, you follow a client through their lives, intervening at the crucial points, births, marriages, divorces, deaths of relatives, house purchases, and then eventually death. It's the natural order of my professional life. Mum kept you particularly busy, I think. Yes, she was one of my more interesting clients, he said, slowly smiling again. Now, have you got the uh, death certificate we discussed on the phone? It's a relatively simple estate, so with a fair wind, we should secure probate in a couple of months. Emma drew the envelope out of her bag and handed it over to the solicitor. He took out his glasses and put them on his nose before examining the death certificate closely. He nodded gravely. Then he raised his arms to the side of the chair and used them to push himself upwards until he seemed to judge that his knees would be able to support him. He moved slowly over to a pile of files in the corner nearest Emma and selected an enormous series of folders second from the top. It was held together by blue elastic bands straining against a foot of paperwork. What on earth had her mother needed to discuss over the years? It fell with a thud onto the desk and Graham smiled the look of a man surveying a job well done. He opened one of the elastic bands and slid in the desk certificate. Thank you for arranging to get this so quickly and for offering to sort out her possessions. As I said on the phone, the will makes a number of stipulations about certain items. I always think it's better for relatives to manage that. It saves unnecessary solicitor's fees and allows for what the Americans like to call closure. Emma snorted. 
I think I had to go through years of therapy to get closure with my mother. She sent the comment lightheartedly, but Graham paused and looked down at the file, stroking it. I'm not a religious man, he said quietly, but I believe there's a phrase in the Bible about walking a, ma- a mile in another man's shoes. Until we have done that, we will never understand what it's like to be the other person. Emma looked down at her hands and realised she was twisting her wedding ring around her finger. She placed her hands on the desk and looked at the old solicitor, who was watching her over his glasses, smiling slightly. She nodded. Emma had no wish to walk in her mother's shoes. Their relationship had been difficult at best. He eased a couple of sheets of paper out of the file. I have your mother's will here, he said, passing it across the desk, so you can see what needs to be done. Emma looked down at the top sheet. Last will and testament was printed in large, bold letters across the top. This will is made by me, Margaret Bullman, of Flat B, 487 Marine Road East, Morecambe, on this day, Monday the 21st of January, 2019, she read. Emma looked up quickly. This will was made the day before she died, she said, her eyes wide. Didn't she have a will before, or did she change it? Graham Eels hesitated. Your mother made some small changes to her will just before she died, but it was easier to make a new one than add them in a codicil. Emma frowned and looked down at the document. Her heart started to thud. Why would Margaret change her will just before she died? And I'll stop there because then we go into <laughs> a whole load of other pits and bobs. So with The Girl in the Maze, can I ask, what was the inspiration for the book? Well, um, I had, uh, I, I'd been on a writing, I was on a writing course at the time and um, it'd been quite a difficult start to the course because my father died soon after the course started yeah. and then six months later my mum died and I was, um, it was quite, in, in some ways it was quite good because I was sort of processing all that mm. through, through the writing um, and I was clearing out my, and I'd had quite a difficult relationship with my mum and I was clearing out her, her house um, and I suddenly thought, oh, I wonder if I found something here which would explain why our relationship was so difficult. Mm. Um, I didn't find anything. It was all, everything was very much in order. But it did give me kind of the germ and the idea for the, for the novel. So it was kind of born in that moment of like, oh, I wish I could find something. And um, yeah, so that was, the, that was the inspiration, really. Because that's, you know, that's, as you say, kind of processing some really big things that are happening in your life at the time alongside writing the novel as well so I can see when you're talking about a way of uh, kind of channeling some of this through the novel but how do you protect yourself as well as a writer when you're approaching things that are are quite sensitive as well or, or might chime with what's going on in your own personal life I think in some way you probably can't and yeah. if you do too much then the, probably the writing will be affected so mm. I think it is quite emotional and um, even though the book is entirely fiction um, a lot of the emotion was the same as uh, what I felt when Emma is burying her mother that she didn't get on with I think that's quite difficult burying someone um, where you had a difficult relationship yeah. whereas um, when someone dies or you have a, had a good relationship with it's a far more straightforward um, thing. And I'm talking about for parents here in a natural order of things, obviously mm. not, not someone who sort of dies out of, um, at a young age. But um, So I think you kind of do need to bring a lot of your own emotion in. And, and even when it's not things that um, you can remember feeling yourself, um, you know, I've written books since which have been nothing to do with emotions and feelings that I've had. You have to kind of live those emotions with those characters. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it won't, it won't become real to the reader. 
and that does definitely come through as well I mean it, yes there's a there's such an emotional truth in your writing it's yeah it's very, it's extremely powerful oh thank you it is um there, there are obviously there's some bits in this book which are quite um really difficult topics mm. and in other books I've read too and they are quite emotional emotionally difficult to to write and then to edit and I, I think those bits are probably edited less than other stuff because you can only read some things so many times before it's actually really really distressing yeah. to keep going for it okay and um, so yeah and you you were talking about kind of other books you've written as well as the girl in the maze um and can you tell us a bit about those yeah so while i was out um trying to get this girl in the maze getting a publishing deal and um, i wrote a, a second novel and i wrote it really quickly um in the sort of third that winter lockdown we had mm. And it was a story set in the Great War and in the present day that I'd always wanted to, to write about a, um, a woman whose daughter, who's, um, who was engaged to be married to a man who was killed in the Great War mm. and who ended up having to marry then someone who was 25 years her senior. So I wrote, a, uh, I wrote a, uh, this book, which I loved, and um, I sent it to, by then I had a publisher, I sent it to the publisher and they rejected it with one line just saying, mm, this is not for us, what else have mm. you got? Mm. Um, by which time um, I was actually about halfway through the third book, which is called The Brighton House, and um, is um, a story um, about a, it's again set in two different time zones, like um, The the Girl in the Maze. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the present day in Berwick-upon-Tweed and in the 1970s in Brighton. And um, in Brighton we have a a woman who is um, newly pregnant, um, very excited to, to do so, and newly married, um, and um, over the course of the, the book, um, her pregnancy develops and then things start to go wrong for her. Um, and in the um, present day, we have um, what turns out to be her daughter, who is also pregnant after years of IVF. Um, and she, um, when, when she's, uh, she's about five months pregnant, when her father gives her a box of her old baby clothes, and um, she discovers at the bottom of this a picture of her mother holding her outside the Brighton house. Mm. And the only problem with that is that she was told that her mother died in childbirth. And so she oh my God. the book um, uncovering um, the secrets of what happened. So that's all done and dusted um, and out on submission at the moment. Oh, amazing. Um, and, and I am uh, writing a third um, or sort of a fourth, but I guess we'll be hopefully the third mm. um, book, which is about four sisters who are semi-estranged and come together after their mother dies. Um, And there's a lot of stuff um, about relationships between mums and teenage daughters. Uh, The protagonist has um, undiagnosed ADHD. And there's lots of of stuff about animal activism and animal welfare um, there as well. So lots of kind of big, big topics to to cover. But I'm just at the beginning of, of that book. Oh, how fantastic. And it's from, well, I'm, I'm, Desperate to read uh, your th- the book Bright that sounds sufficient yeah. at the moment. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And when you're describing the books as well, um, character and relationships seem to um, be quite prominent themes in all of them as well. And I just wonder, when you're starting with your story idea, does it start with a plot or do you start with the character? How does that work? I mean, I guess from um, what, what you said about the girl in the maze, it kind of started with the what if. Um, yes, I think it did with that. I mean, I, when I was on the writing course, I was writing lots of different pieces um, of, um, sort of writing exercises. And it was only towards the end that I realised 
they weren't kind of separate pieces. They were actually the same characters. Mm. But And eventually that, those became the girl in the maze. So that was a really kind of, I guess, kind of groping in the dark because I didn't really know how to write a novel. The second one was very much based on a character. So my grandmother um, had been engaged to be married to a man who was killed in Passchendaele. And then she married my grandfather, who was 25 years older than her and created a kind of a whole world of issues. Um, so that was based on, on character. Um, the third one actually was just based, I happened to see a really random documentary on um, a, um, actually it was a man who discovered some secrets about his mother. And I thought it was just a really good family secret. And so that was very much plot based. And I completely changed it. And it was about, because I like writing about mothers and daughters, I think that's quite an interesting dynamic. Um, and so that was very much plot based. With this, it was, again, I think it was a what if question um, that came to me. And, um, and yes, and various um, kind of inspiration from different things, really. My, um, my middle child has just been diagnosed with ADHD mm-hmm. after a really difficult few years. And um, it kind of struck me that and I've since written, uh, read loads of books about ADHD and talked to adults who have only been recently diagnosed. Mm. I kind of thought how that affects family relationships when people don't appreciate what you're kind of struggling with. Um, and that they, they just accuse you of being disruptive and not normal and, and whatever when you're dealing with all these, these really challenging things going on in your head. Mm. Um, so I kind of thought, well, how would that impact the family dynamic? And then especially when the sisters come back together in their 40s. So, yeah, I think it is. You're right. It is very much a kind of what-if question and then kind of strong characters who, who come to my mind. And um, with the with the novels where you've had your um, multiple timelines and kind of the more uh, his, historical settings, how much research do you um, have to do to kind of make that feel authentic? I think quite a, yeah, quite a lot really. And even um, stuff in the present day, I think you do have to to research. So certainly when I was writing The Girl in the Maze, large chunks of it are set in like 1930, and so I really did have to. Um, uh, you know, research that quite a bit, and with the the Great War story, and I was lucky. I came across a, a BBC um, sort of mini series called Home Front, which ran from I think 2014 to 2018. It was a radio program, and it just count, uh, it just talked about everything which was happening um, in the UK and England while the Great War was on. And so I got the voices and some of the um, how, you know, how they would speak, what they were eating, and all that stuff at the time. So that was really helpful. Um, but I think you really do have to immerse yourself in those timelines. And yeah. um, for the Brighton House, um, set in the 1970s, even that, because I was born in the 70s, but I wasn't out going to the pub. Mm-hmm. I wasn't kind of managing a house or anything like that. So just understanding what that was like and just chatting to people. So I spoke to an old midwife about what it was like um, in labor wards in mm-hmm. the 70s. I spoke to some um and my um, friend's mum who had given birth in the 70s about what that was like. Um, and a couple of people who'd lived in Brighton in the 70s as well. So just getting that kind of, because the emotions are still there, the, the yeah. characters are the same, but it's just the settings and sort of the cultural constraints, I guess, which are, which are different. But I really, I did a, an English history degree, so I really enjoy the, the research part. That's really fun. Uh, so um, writing uh, dual timeline books that have a, a, a historical theme are very much in your comfort zone yeah. then I guess if you're yes, a, I love it. a, a yeah, English historian I guess as well that kind of it keeps um keeps it interesting for you as well during the writing process to have that kind of those two things working concurrently yes and I think it's interesting when you get to kind of the plotting bit and where things go that you're kind of 
um, what you reveal, does the reader find out things first or does the character find out mm. things first? And um, the different impact on the reader, depending on whether they know before the character knows. So, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's yeah, it definitely keeps things things fresh. And on a on a practical point with that, do you do you write one timeline in its entirety and then another one, or do you kind of mix it mix it up? No, I kind of mix it up um, depending on kind of how I'm how I'm feeling. So when I'm just started writing, I have I started to write um, chronologically. Um, and so that's been quite interesting. But I think I will eventually go back and start doing some stuff in the present day and back and forth. Um, the only way, if you do do that, though, you then have to edit really carefully mm. afterwards. You end up making mistakes about who knew what when and all that that kind of stuff. Yes, and the first person who's going to spot that's your reader, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask as well about Kemptown bookshop i mean for sam and i this is dream job stuff running your own bookshop and so you changed your career um to become a bookseller and now run a bookshop which is also it's not just a bookshop it's a community hub you support uh local writers emerging writers it's just it's yeah a a wonderfully inspiring place and yeah i just wondered if you could just tell us a bit about that and and what made you jump in you know two feet and saying right i'm gonna do it (laughs) Cool. Okay. So I had, um, as you said in your intro, I'd been in a, I've been working in a PR agency for about 11 years and I was just beginning to get a little bit stale and just needed a new challenge. And then a friend of mine who lives around the corner from, from Kemptown Bookshop um, said, um, just messaged me one day and said, oh, that bookshop you like is up for sale. So they, they put a little sign outside. And I thought, oh, um, and you know how sometimes you go on to like right move and start looking at properties like million pound plus properties yeah. that you could never afford and have a nose around I thought oh I'll do that I'll have a look at this bookshop and so I approached the agents and got the details and I thought actually as the kind of days went by I thought maybe I could do this and I spoke to the bank and said I'd like to buy a bookshop would they lend me some money and they said no straight away and so then I phoned them back a couple of days later and said I'd like to buy a brand new car will you lend me the money and they said yes (laughs) so I Took the money for this brand new car and bought a bookshop with it. Um, But it was, yeah, it was just sort of um, a bit of a spur of the moment thing. But I have run businesses, small businesses before. And although I had no experience really book selling, I kind of thought, well, you know, there was very experienced people in the shop already. So I I inherited the team who were there. Um, And so they kind of taught me, uh, they trained me up really to be a bookseller. And I mean, it's a year in, um, still learning loads of course, but... Um, yeah, it's been an amazing year. So we, we run events every Thursday to champion local authors, uh, whether they're sort of launching a new book. We have sort of panel debates about stuff. Um, and, yeah, it's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful space. It's really kind of um, inclusive. We, our events are free so that anyone can kind of come along. Um, and it's not kind of, you know, it's open to everyone. So, yeah, it's um, the best job I've ever had, I think. Sounds yeah, it sounds like an absolute dream, as Anna said. Um, so, how did what do your kind of days look like then? How much time are you in the bookshop, and how much time are you writing? So, I tend to the writing is very much a very part time job. Sadly, I'd love to think that I could spend all day all day writing, <laughs> but I, I'm an early morning writer. So, when I am in, in actually in the writing mode, which I am at the moment, I get up at five and I write from five till seven. Um, then I get my kids up and then I go into the, get them to school and then I go into the bookshop. Um, I work in the bookshop about four days a week 
because I also have a job on um, the creative writing program. I'm, I'm co-managing that with um, Dr. Mark Slater, who, who set that up. Um, and I still do a little bit of work for my PR agency as well. So, yeah, I juggle these kind very of... Very busy woman. <laughs> things. Um, but it, it kind of works well. And, you know, longer term, I hope I'll step away from the PR agency and um, be able to make my living completely from books. So it's writing them, selling them, helping other people write them. Um, which is the which is the dream? My heart um, always breaks a little bit when when we're talking to people who say they get up at five and write because I just can't do it myself. Um, Anna Anna is uh, an early morning writer, but it's just not. Um, I my best time like when I get into flow the most is about three o'clock in the afternoon, which is you know okay. not very helpful when the children are getting home from school. <laughs> no, no, I can imagine. Well, I, I I'm a big fan of the five a.m. because for me it's when everything is really quiet. Although yeah. a couple of times I have managed to, my son has come home from clubbing just as I'm getting up to write, which has been a bit weird for both of us. Um, but I've, um, I want to test out the 5am theory with other people. So um, for the summer solstice coming up, I'm opening up a bookshop at five. Oh, nice. And um, seeing if other people would like to join me in writing. So um, we'll see how popular that is. Oh, well, I can see um, Sam looking despairingly, but I think that sounds fantastic. I'm only looking despairingly <laughs> because I like to go and get in the sea at, sun, at sunrise on the solstice. <laughs> oh, wow, that would be good. So, um, with your, with so you know, you've given yourself quite a, a uh, the early start, the kind of like the seven to the six, sorry, the five to seven shift to do some writing before um, the next part of your day starts. How do you measure? if that morning's gone successfully? like I, I, do, uh, I do have a sort of word count, which is a thousand words in those two hours. Um, but I don't kind of beat myself up if I don't, yeah. if I don't reach it. Um, but I think, I, I, often, I, I think beforehand, or the night before when I'm going to sleep, I think about what I'm going to write. So I'm usually, I usually tend to write a, manage to write a scene in that time. Um, and so I'll think about what that scene is. So I'm kind of going to sleep thinking about it and thinking about the characters. And I'm a kind of strong believer that the mind does its thing overnight yeah. and I will wake up. And I mean, sometimes the writing is really crap. I'm not saying I kind of wake up and it's just amazing. Um, but yeah, I think just that thing of kind of pondering overnight really helps. Um, but again, if I don't, sometimes I'm doing research at five o'clock, but it's not always actually writing. So this morning, I think I wrote about 450 words, but I was doing quite a lot of research at the yeah. same time as I was writing. Um, and because I'm quite early on, um, a lot of the time I'm adding, I, I use Scrivener to write mm-hmm. um, and I'm adding in lots of information into like the characters. Um, I think of a new thing that the character might have done in the past and I add, kind of add that in because that's all kind of um, building them up as a character and why they act the way they do. So um, yeah, I don't beat myself up if I don't reach a thousand words as long as I haven't kind of distracted myself from other things, yeah. which you know, I, sometimes I think, oh, I might go onto Twitter and just say, who's with me for the 5am club? Mm. And of course that's just, a nap it's um, a total thief of time isn't it yeah 15 minutes has gone by like oh my god um so yeah it is a bit a bit of self-discipline and and a bit of coffee as well yes coffee always yeah I think um that research side of things as well um if you you know you have to be quite disciplined with research and that's uh, the book that I'm writing at the moment is set in the 90s and I can go down a proper kind of like uh, 90s wormhole and then think this isn't research anymore I'm just listening to crap music I used to listen yeah, to <laughs> yeah it is amazing it's, I'm, uh, one of my characters in this book um, is um, a part of Extinction Rebellion 
And I suddenly realised I was reading loads of articles about Extinction Rebellion. I think I don't need this level of research. <laughs> but you just get really into it, don't you? Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Oh, well, brilliant. I can't believe um, our time has nearly come to an end. So just wanted to kind of finish up with a question that um, a lot of our listeners are sort of uh, emerging writers or new to writing. And I wondered what advice you uh, would give to them or kind of what do you wish someone had said to you when you started writing? Well, I think it's to take it as a as a long term a long term thing is to you know very few people get success overnight, so be prepared to be in it for for the long haul. Um, I think writing is a muscle and it really needs to be exercised mm. really regularly. So try to write every day, even if it's just a sentence. I think that um, that's really key. And and find your own writing routine. You were saying that you're um, best in the afternoon. I'm definitely best in the morning. Um, so find out when that best time is for you. And to kind of carve it out, mm. however, because and to make that the kind of priority, um, not over you know your own children's lives, obviously. But <laughs> um, I always sort of think, oh, you know, should I go out until eleven o'clock the night before and drink loads because I'm not going to be able to get up at five o'clock? So really prioritise your writing over over other things. And I think finally, please like write what you know. Yeah. Um, I wrote about I write a lot about mother daughter relationships because I had a quite tumultuous relationship with my mum. And I have um, I have three children, two of whom are, are girls. Um, so I've got a lot of material um, to work with. But write whatever it is that you know, and then, then I think it is, is truth. Oh, that's brilliant, Cathy, and fantastic advice. So, yes, no boozy nights if you want to get up first thing in the morning and do some writing. <laughs> um, so for um, our listeners who would like to find you on socials and so on, you, you mentioned Twitter. Um, how, would, how would our listeners find you? Um, so on Twitter, I think I'm Kathy Hayward Seven, and on Instagram, I'm Kathy Hayward Writer. And of course, people should visit the Kemptown Bookshop. Of course, yes, <laughs> definitely. And if they want to join me for writing at five o'clock on the summer solstice, I would love to see them. Brilliant! And best of luck with your book that's out on submission at the moment. We cannot Great. wait to read it. Great stuff! Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for spending some time with us. We hope you found some inspiration in that chat. For more writing resources, go to our website, writingaroundthekids.co.uk, where you'll find tips, prompts and links to our social media. And don't forget, you can catch up with all the brilliant episodes from Series 1 and 2.